Hello, everyone, and welcome to Heads Up, the weekly webcast and podcast of the National Headache Foundation. I'm Dr. Lindsay Weitzel, founder of the Facebook group Migraine Nation and chronic daily migraine survivor. I am here today with Dr. Tim Smith. Hello, Dr. Smith. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Thanks for having me on again. Thanks for being here. Many of you know Dr. Smith. He is a regular on Heads Up. Dr. Smith is the CEO of Study Metrics Research, and he is also the Vice President of the National Headache Foundation. So today we have an awesome topic that is one of my favorite topics related to migraine. We're going to talk about genetics and migraine. We're going to discuss a paper that was recently published in Nature Genetics that discusses 123 genes or genetic loci that were found to be associated with migraine, which is really exciting for us because this it opens the door uh, to discover some pathophysiology related to migraine, drug targets, Anytime we find genes related to our disease, this is great information for us. So let's talk about this paper. Uh, I invite everyone to just think about all the people you're related to that have migraine, including you, because this is this is um, important for today's topic. I have uh, my father has chronic migraine. I have chronic migraine. I have a son who was diagnosed with chronic migraine when he was seven. So many of us are fully aware that this is a genetic disorder. So get comfortable and let's ask Dr. Smith some questions. So um, let's be honest, there's a lot of stigma associated with our disease. And I honestly feel like these types of studies validate us a little bit because we don't really have genetic markers of migraine. So what do you feel Dr. Smith is the best use of these uh, gene studies? So the gene studies of the type we're talking about today are, uh, they're really great for uh, identifying some uh, target uh, markers, uh, right. new uh, genetic and hence molecular because all of those gene uh, aberrations that, uh, that are associated with uh, migraine attacks uh, code for uh, proteins that uh, uh, make up uh, cellular functions uh, and uh, vascular, you know, targets. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, it's basically a big uh, hypothesis generator. So we have 123 new uh, risk loci in the, um, uh, in the, in our armamentarium or what we know about the, about uh, genetic linkages to migraine. And so these are uh, a lot of hypotheses that we can look into to uh, develop uh, new uh, treatments uh, possibly for helping us select treatments, because as you know, most of migraine care now is trial and error, and uh, this yeah. might help us uh, be able to zero in on on effective treatments. Uh, uh, more likely, uh, I think we still have ways to go to be able to to do that, but uh, but that's one possibility that could come out of this. Right. So migraine is described as a polygenic disorder. Can you talk to us about what that means? Sure. So polygenic, uh, the literal, you know, uh, Latin translation poly is many and genic means genes. So mm -hmm. uh, basically uh, it means that there are a lot of different uh, uh, potential genetic causes uh, different gene mutations that can lead to uh, a, a problem uh, in your neurovascular system that give us what we call migraine. So there's the phenotype, which is the symptoms that people have, and the genotype, which is the 
uh, uh, DNA abnormalities that uh, code for uh, the problem. And, and, and um, so genotype versus phenotype, and, and we, ha- we may have different phenotypes, but there, there are some central um, symptoms of migraine that we recognize across the spectrum of migraine. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so a polygenic, a polygenic disorder like migraine means there may be different uh, DNA mutations that, that lead to the phenotype of, of the migraine attack. Okay. So is this part of why our, why migraine is so diverse? Why we have why I, my migraine doesn't look like your migraine? Uh, and is it because we might have a different genetic makeup that causes our migraine disorder? Yeah, I think that uh, probably has a lot to do with it. It's not proven, but mm-hmm. uh, it, it sort of makes sense, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, while our, we may have some central features that are, that are alike across the population of patients, uh, there may be some differences, like the difference between aura and, and not having aura, or patients who have maybe they have more gastric symptoms than, than not, or you could make up whatever different kind of presentation you want. And what we don't know is if it has anything to do with a propensity for increased frequency or susceptibility to medication overuse headache right. or um, you know chronification. Uh, or whether they go away, uh, whether they're hormonally related, uh, whether they go get better with age, you know, there's all these different things and, and uh, patients present with different uh, stories. Uh, and it, some of that may be determined by uh, some of these uh, different gene mutations that uh, may account for all the different presentations. Right. So this study performed something called a genome-wide association study. Can you give us a bit of an explanation of the strengths and weaknesses of this type of genetic methodology? Well, so what they do, it's, it's, it's a great big data mining exercise. Mm-hmm. Basically, they have a, a huge pool of uh, uh, gene, uh, genetic uh, sequence, uh, basically patients who've had their genome sequenced. Um, and they used five different databases and combined uh, all of these different uh, uh, gene sequences from uh, over 100,000 uh, migraine patients and 700-something thousand uh, controls. Mm-hmm. And when you have that, that large of a database and you know something about uh, the patient's history, that is, whether they have migraine headaches or not, then you can match up uh, what kind of headache they have, what kind of what their migraine attack look like and uh, we can uh, compare that to these uh, these genetic sequences it's not exactly needle in the haystack but it's it's looking for any uh, genetic sequence that tends to be associated with migraine and uh, when they did this analysis there were 123 of them that kind of rose to the top out of thousands and thousands uh, so it basically, brings forward this this hypothesis that these genes uh, may be part of the polygenic uh, makeup of of migraine in a population of patients. Okay. When they use this methodology, were they able to discover the function of each gene that was found? Is that something that we know? No, uh, this just only gives us the association. So 
Um, in in uh, research, we have a saying, you know, association does not equal causation. Right. Uh, but uh, it, 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 that's why I refer to it as a hypothesis generator. Okay. But when we looked at this, it was interesting that one of the, the that we've only proven uh, three gene associations with a specific subtype of, of migraine called hemiplegic migraine. Mm-hmm. And we know what those genes code for and what's made abnormal by those genetic mutations that lead to the hemiplegic migraine. It's easily recognizable mm-hmm. uh, because of the way it occurs. But presumably there are uh, genetic uh, abnormalities that can lead to other protein aberrations, maybe a uh, an ion channel, an ion pore that doesn't function right, that allows the brain to be more sensitive or our blood vessels to react in a certain way or right. or nerve you know, uh, pain signals to be transmitted more efficiently. And uh, one of the ones that was associated with migraine with aura was one of the known um, uh, gene abnormalities for hemiplegic migraine, which is a, a type of migraine aura. It's mm-hmm. not very common, but when you see it, you recognize it. So that's kind of validating there. But but for all of the others, we don't have that known uh, what that no, what we don't know what those genetic sequences do, and then how it behaves physiologically. It can be studied, uh, but uh, you, what this can do is kind of give us a little more of a laser focus on some some uh, gene aberrations that that uh, could be studied and we could uh, open up a whole new um, world of, of uh, diagnostics and possible therapeutics uh, for uh, for those patients that experience a particular headache type. Right. Using your previous terminology, we don't know exactly how this is manifesting phenotypically or clinically uh, just when we we have these these genetic aberrations. Um, one of these things, the things I find exciting about this study and these 123 genes, 86 of them were previously known to us from a study done in 2016, but that means 38 of them are brand new to us, right? Um, so first of all, I, what I'm curious about is, do you think we found them all? Or do you think we might find some more genes uh, related to migraine in the future? Right. I, I don't think we have found them all. I don't know if we've even scratched the surface. Uh, this could be the majority of them. Uh, what we know is, you know, the difference in the two analyses that you mentioned uh, was that the first one uh, done a few years back mm. was on a smaller set. Right. And then what these investigators have done is uh, they've gotten a, a much larger data set from uh, these different databases where people uh, would have their uh, uh, their genes sequenced, and these are companies like the 23andMe was one of the companies mm-hmm. that they got uh, a data dump from, and there were four others. Um, and so people who volunteer and they give part of their history and they tell what their medical diagnoses are, and then uh, when we go through and do these uh, sophisticated uh, uh, data visualization studies, then we can see which of those. Uh, um, uh, they call them risk loci. So these were uh, small bits of genetic material that that had a unique uh, pattern that was associated with migraine. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so no, we don't we don't think this is all of them. Uh, I think if we continue to add more and more to the database, we're going to see more and more uh, a potential um, you know uh, risk loci that are associated with with uh, the different migraine phenotypes. Okay. 
Um, so we learned a few really interesting things about subgroups. So one of the things the authors looked at um, was whether they could group the genetics of migraine based on people who had migraine with aura and people who had migraine without aura. What did they find there? Right, so there were uh, a small number of uh, these uh, uh, um, they risk um, low side, they call mm-hmm. them, uh, that were there were three that were highly specific for uh, migraine with uh, with aura. And uh, there were there were two that were highly specific for migraine without aura. And that meant that it was almost uh, exclusively associated with uh, the migraine without aura and not with migraine with aura and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was sort of interesting. And it would suggest that people who have uh, one of those um, uh, uh, risk loci uh, would have migraine with aura and, and, uh, and then the converse would also be true uh, for the other group. Uh, But interestingly, there were nine, nine uh, uh, risk loci that uh, were uh, associated with both. Right. Uh, equally. So, uh, so I, uh, it's, um, it's, it remains to be seen um, what that means, but I, I don't think it necessarily means that if you had one of these, that you could reliably predict that this would be something inherited through your family. Right. Uh, uh, we do know that, uh, that that does happen. And for example, hemiplegic migraine, when it occurs, uh, you can do a pedigree and you can see where the cases uh, come through mm-hmm. uh, through through the generations. Um, so that that could be the case on some of these, but I don't think we can hang our hat on that just yet. Right. So I was going to ask a question just to make that, you know, more real world for us. Does that mean if if my mother, let's say, had uh, migraine without aura, would it be impossible for me to inherit migraine with aura? Right. No, it would not be yeah. impossible if she had one of those overlap ones, you know, right. then we see it go both ways. And then you you only get half of your your genetics from your from your mother and the mm-hmm. other half from your father. And so you could have a different expression. Uh, and certainly we see some people in families that have migraine with aura and some that don't. Right. Um, and there has been debate, though, I think um, uh, throughout, uh, you know, the last uh, couple of decades, really maybe three decades, as to whether migraine with aura and migraine without aura are the same thing or if they represent different entities. And I think Mm -hmm. what this analysis shows is that there are probably some folks with migraine with aura that that is a different entity than, uh, you know, when you look at the polygenic, you know, potential for this, there, that some patients are, are, you know, you know, that uh, they do have that risk that uh, lines them up with migraine with aura and then others that do not, but then there are those overlap ones too. So, um, so it, it it doesn't throw it completely out the window, but you can't hang your hat on it either. Right. Then my next question is there's always been some debate within the migraine community and the medical community about whether migraine is a neurological condition, whether it's a vascular condition, and then we all just call it often a neurovascular condition. And they tried to look at that based on these genetic loci. What did they find there? Uh, They found that uh, that last term you used was probably the most appropriate, the Mm -hmm. neurovascular. You know, it's a 50 years ago, we uh, physicians uh, thought of migraine as strictly a vascular phenomenon. 
and in the 90s, uh, uh, it's researchers uh, identified these uh, uh, the trigeminal nerve uh, activation uh, and the inflammatory uh, plasma extravasation of inflammation of the dura and the lining around the brain. Uh, as uh, mechanisms that didn't involve blood vessel changes, right. and so uh, there was this increasing school of thought that it was it was a pure brain disorder, just a neurologic, and that the vascular uh, uh, changes that we saw were reactive to the neurologic uh, phenomena that were going on. And uh, this, uh, in, in this, the these risk loci uh, coded for proteins uh, that uh, were. Uh, highly specific for uh, neurologic tissue and vascular tissue and not much else in the body. So that, that really kind of um, it's, it's, it's a big uh, broad strokes way to, to uh, you know, refer to it. Uh, but it, it looks like it's not as easy just to separate it out as neurologic versus vascular. It's uh, it's both. Right. Um, and how do you think we can use this gene data to improve the lives of those of us with migraine, what do you think is going to, how, how do you think we're going to use it? Well, you know, it, give, it gives us a whole lot of new, uh, a great big number of new uh, hypotheses, new uh, potentially molecular targets to research. And I think it also explains why there's not a one size fits all treatment, mm-hmm. you know, for this. And so we can understand. And, and unfortunately for many people, uh, they don't respond to a number of things. And it may be that they have a very unique uh, genetic um, abnormality that, yeah. that makes their migraine uh, behave differently and respond differently. Yeah. So I think we we have hope of, of new, mo- new molecular targets uh, that might come from this that might help those people that don't respond to this to the things we have today. Um, and it, and the other thing is, I, I think I mentioned it a little bit earlier is, is sort of, um, trying to predict responses to certain therapies instead of just being a trial and error kind of thing. So if we knew that someone, uh, and one of the mutations that they found was actually highly specific for a CGRP, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, gene, and that's, we know the CGRP monoclonals and the GPANTs, uh, block the effects of CGRP. Right. And uh, it may be that uh, if we we could develop, uh, I could see somewhere down the line having a blood test that would tell us whether or not we would be should be a CGRP uh, uh, blocker responder. responder. Yeah. yeah. So it could be could be interesting if it turns out that way. Right. I love that idea. I love the idea of using this data to make new medicines. I love the idea of it helping. Uh, hopefully, there being better treatments for those of us that have children. With migraine um, in the future, I want it to be a better world for them. And I love the idea that it help, helps us know, possibly someday it could help us know whether or not we're going to respond to a medicine. Um, is there anything you'd like to add to our discussion on this, this awesome genetic and migraine data? Well, I guess, you know, the one big observation that uh, people like me would want to take would take away from this is that this whole concept of looking at real world uh, data and doing data mining from these huge databases and, uh, you know, doing these matching exercises so that we can identify um, uh, associations that could lead to uh, new discoveries and new cures. 
it's pretty fascinating. And just a few years ago, we didn't have these capabilities, our, our, but now we have supercomputers and huge mm-hmm. uh, uh, data platforms that can, you know, we're, we're talking about columns that are in the in the millions, you know, right. as opposed to, you know, you, if you took a stats class or something when you were in college, you might have worked with these tables and the more mm-hmm. columns they had and more rows they had, the more complicated they were to solve. And now we have the supercomputing capabilities um, you know, the, the um, AI and uh, other uh, machine learning uh, capacities that, uh, that we can put to use for us and analyze huge, huge, unbelievably huge uh, volumes of data and come away with uh, learnings that could be quite significant. Uh, you know, you, you combine that. And the other thing that's enabled this is the, is the mapping of the human genome, you know, which was mm-hmm. accomplished a few years ago. And um you know, when when the human genome was mapped, uh, we all said, oh, now we're going to learn so much, you know, the cures are just going to come falling through the rafters and we'll have, every, you know, every just it's going to fix everybody. But it's been a little it's been a little slow and cumbersome getting right. there. But And I think what we have needed is is uh, these large databases to be uh, put into um, systems where they can and, and use software packages that are capable of doing these huge analyses and, and giving us understandable results. And that's kind of where we're going and where we are uh, these days. So that's that, you know, I, I would suspect that these kinds of analyses may become uh, more and more commonplace as we go forward, as we have uh, more and more uh, patients that have had their, their genome sequenced uh, and contributed to databases where this kind of analysis can be done. Right. Right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Smith. This was a super interesting webcast and podcast. And thank you everyone for joining us this week on the weekly webcast and podcast of the National Headache Foundation.